Thank you for listening to this audio from Trinity Presbyterian Church in Spartanburg, South Carolina. For more information about Trinity, visit our website, trinityspartanburg.com. Please turn in your Bibles to Revelation chapter 21. Revelation chapter 21. We'll be reading the first four verses. Please stand for the reading of God's word. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and first earth passed away, and there was no longer any sea. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God, made ready as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is among men, and he will dwell among them, and they shall be his people, and God himself will be among them and he will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and there will be no longer any death. There will no longer be any mourning or crying or pain. The first things have passed away. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Before we begin, let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we come before you today, Lord, ill-prepared for the work of your Holy Spirit, ill-prepared for understanding your word. Lord, the week has invaded our mind, the coming week. invades us with fear. We are a people that are very earthly. And Lord, I pray today that we are convinced to be more heavenly and to think on the thoughts that are thought first by you. And Lord, we ask these things in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. It was... uh, interesting that today's Sunday School uh, dealt with the conscience and how many believers can have many different views that that can be tolerated within our orthodoxy that we have to also at the same time have a strong uh, solid belief about but then leave room for each other. Um, We talked about that in terms of baptism and head coverings and things like that. And here we are turning to the book of Revelation, chapter 21 of all things, which is really where all the whatever millennial uh, idea you have of the end times begins to part ways. Uh, There are, of course, pre-millennial, post-millennial, amillennial. There's dispensational premillennial, more of a, of a new idea. We're not going to talk about those things today, but uh, 
we're going to talk about something I think we can all agree on. And that is the excitement and the uh, anticipation of the new heaven and the new earth. Um, I, have, uh, I have often, uh, as I was growing up, been quite bored when people would turn to Revelation. In fact, when a pastor would turn to the book of Revelation, when, the minute he said it, I would immediately turn off uh, my interest. My heart would sink. I was like, here we go. Now, to be, uh, to be fair, I did grow up in a very fundamentalist world where uh, anytime Revelation was mentioned, charts and graphs were pulled out and uh, all kinds of things. Um, but I remember I was bored with it because a lot of times I didn't know what all this stuff meant. I didn't know what a new heaven and a new earth even meant. Uh, a new Jerusalem descending uh, onto the new earth. Uh, what's that about? Um, because one of the things we forget about the book of Revelation is the book of Revelation is indeed a book that requires you to understand symbolism. Uh, it warns you of that within the text, the very first chapter, tells you to, to be ready. There's going to be a lot of symbolism in here. It's what we call apocalyptic literature. Um, and so it warns you, be careful. Some of this is going to be symbolic. Some of this, if you take it literally, won't make a lot of sense. Um, and I know that sounds terrible to say because we take great, great pride in our history um, of interpret, interpreting the Bible and interpreting it literally. Um, however, I am sure not too many in the room are believing that a seven-headed person is going to walk right out of the sea and start leading nations. Uh, we do believe that there's something that, that refers to. So... I know that's a terrible introduction. I'm sure I didn't uh, in, intrigue anybody. Uh, but I, I, I was convicted of this passage as I read it um, even a few months ago because it still didn't do anything for me. Um, and I, I think preaching is a lot easier when a preacher has found something that uh, other people are guilty of uh, and that you get to really bring it out and say, hey, this is what you guys need to be working on, um, I have it cornered. Um, but this is something that convicted me. Um, it's something that uh, made me realize a lot of problems in my own heart. That as I read something about how the Lord is putting something together for us, I don't care. Um, so let me start with an illustration. I wanted to, I had a lot of uh, pop culture illustrations, um, but I thought this one might help us even better. Uh, if you remember in 1 Samuel, uh, you remember the story of Nabal and uh, Abigail? Um, so David goes to this guy named Nabal, and he's asking for food for his men. 
this man is, is described this way by, by Scripture. Now, the man's name was Nabal, and his wife's name was Abigail, and the woman was intelligent and beautiful in appearance. That's pretty cool. But the man was harsh and evil in his dealings, and he was a Calebite. And it just goes on what a jerk this guy is. I mean, he was, he was one of those guys that are absolutely insecure because um, his wife is intelligent and beautiful. He is not intelligent. Um, he's a brute. So he uses his wealth to make him feel like a man. And we see, all, we see this in today's world where men find things that makes them feel like a man because they haven't acted like one. Um, and I'm not saying sports, anyone that is a sports fan is this way, but I think sports has become that way for a lot of men where if they're not winning at home, maybe their team will win. Um, but with Nabal, you have this real mismatch of a marriage, right? It's a real mismatch. And we've, you've seen this in real life, haven't you? Uh, you've seen... Um, Maybe you've seen a bride uh, that seems to be really with it and intelligent, good-looking, and then she introduces you to her husband. You're like, oh, what happened there? Was it arranged? Um, and, uh, and, and, you know, back in the day, you know, in David's day, there wasn't a ton of choice, uh, for, especially for women. Um, often they were told who, were they, who they were going to marry. There was some choice, uh, but not a lot. Um, these mismatches, it almost seems depressing, doesn't it, to see a mismatch? Where you see a man that's, um, and I've seen this happen a lot too. You see men who probably would be really cool, really like to hang around them more if they weren't married to her. <laughs> right? Where he's just, he's pathetic. I mean, she rules over him. Nothing he does pleases her. She uses this lack of being pleased as a way of punishing him, and he's just this weak, beaten-down guy. And she is just this angry uh, dictator of the house. And you see these mismatches, and you see this guy trying so hard to please her, and nothing pleases her. In fact, she really longs to be single again. Maybe she longs for that feminist feeling of being her own person. She doesn't need a man or whatever it is. Or maybe she feels like uh, being with other men. It should sicken you to watch as you see a woman who is married to a man that longs for something less. The challenge I want to bring to us today is that we act like that. We are the bride that is what I call the disinterested bride, where our husband is perfect and holy and good and beautiful and intelligent, and his bride is a brute who is unloving, uncaring, uninterested. 
I want to show you how this whole talk in Revelation chapter 21 even comes about. If you look back in, uh, did I say Romans? Yeah, I meant Revelation, and that's going to happen probably for the rest of the, the time I speak. I just, I, anytime I see, it's, it's how reformed I really am. I think every book of the Bible is Romans. Okay. So, um, Revelation. If you look at Revelation chapter 20, um, just before 21, if you look in those, you'll, you'll see, starting in verse 11, it says, Then I saw a great white throne, and him who sat upon it, from whose presence earth and heaven fled away, and no place was found, was found for them. Think of the power that's being presented as it talks about God who sits on his, on his throne and, and, the, and earth and heaven flees from him. And I saw the dead, the great and the small, standing before the throne, and the books were opened. I want you to think about what we think is the great and the small here on earth. I want you to think about the strivings we have on this earth. I want you to think about the people you wish you were. The people that you might have a little bit of jealousy for. Like if you had their money, their power, their intelligence, you'd do it the right way, right? Money can't make you happy, can't make people happy, but it could make you happy because you'd know how to use it right. Um, Elon Musk is a weird genius, but he's weird. If you had that genius, you'd be the cool genius, right? I mean, we kind of think in terms of this world and this home and the great and the small that the world has told us is great and what the world has told us is small. Think of the pressures, and we don't think about this much because we don't think about pastors until it's Sunday, but if you think about a pastor and his work throughout the week, think about your pastor when he goes and meets with other pastors, and they say, hey, how are things going? And the first thing they ask, really, and, and it's, out of, it's probably not out of a dark heart, but a lot of people ask, well, how are things going? What do they mean? What's your attendance? How are the pews being filled? What's your number now? And it must be difficult, right? No matter what the number is, doesn't feel like it's enough. And imagine how it is even coming to our church, seeing some empty pews, and you think, well, maybe this church is, it doesn't really have its act together. Because you know a church has its act together when it has to build addition after addition to fill all the people that are swarming into that place. They must be doing it right because there are tons and tons of people, and if you have tons of people, something's going well, and therefore that's what success looks like. The numbers that drive to you. Think about what you think success is, even in what you do for the week. And the people that we revere, the people we think are kind of a hero in our mind, the great and the small, and they all stand before the throne. 
where great and small doesn't mean anything anymore. All the standards that we held that were so important don't mean anything anymore. Think of the criteria we use to decide whether we are happy or not. And how foolish we are about what we think that means. And the people that have attained the things we want stand before God. And those things don't matter anymore. Because what matters is what happens when they open up those books. When the book is opened which is the book of life. And the dead were judged from the things which were written in the books according to their deeds. And the sea gave up the dead which were in it. And and death and Hades gave up the dead which were in them. And they were judged, every one of them, according to their deeds. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Uh, at my work, uh, we, uh, one of our presidents back in the day used to, used to start our chapel time with uh, this question. He would say, what is the most sobering reality in the world today? And we would answer, the most sobering reality in the world today is that people are dying and going to hell today. That is a sobering reality. We look at what is there for those who are not in covenant with Christ. It is an eternity in a lake of fire where not even death can hide you from it. There isn't a time where you can, you can live peacefully into your death. Death is thrown into the lake of fire so that there is no more death, even in the lake of fire. You are living death every day, day after day after day. There is no hope of the future where you are relieved into a third death. There is only the second. These things are the reality of life. And then we go into chapter 21. And what is waiting for his bride? For the bride of Christ, those that are in Christ. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth For the first heaven and the first earth passed away. We look around at the physics and the beauty of this world. Some of us haven't even studied physics enough to know how beautiful this world is. Chuck has been able to do some uh, academic work in physics to see the beauty and the amazement of what happens with things we can't even really see. We've built machines to try and understand the quantum world that, we, that, that is under the surface of all this. How does a photon work? And how do particles react? And all these sort of things that make up this world 
that we can't even see, and we've tried to make machines that try and help us see it. But even the machines can't help us see it because once we introduce photons to be able to see it, it messes up everything. And so we really can't see it. And we are just amazed at this amazing thing. And what is said here is God says, that's not enough for my bride. Some of you have been able to go to other countries and see the beauty of it. If you've ever been to the Alps and you see the, these green mountains that just keep stretching out and out and out and these impossible cliffs that lead down to more beautiful green and you wonder who is mowing all this grass? I mean, it's so weird. I mean, here in America, we look at you know, these wild places and everything's grown up and it's all... Uh, this looks a little unkempt, you know what I'm saying? Um, but over in, in Europe, you look around and the grass literally looks like it's cut. It's the weirdest thing I've ever seen, but it's the most beautiful thing I've ever seen. You see water cascading down and you're like, this is insanely beautiful. And God says, that's not enough. We look up at the sky and we see these amazing things happening before us where we see a spot that's just this little pinprick of light. And then we find out that little pinprick of light is actually billions of stars. It's another galaxy of, of worlds upon worlds upon worlds of suns that make our sun look like this tiny little speck compared to the giant suns that, you, that are out there. And that there's these planets that have these bizarre things going on in them and moons and it's just incredible and God says that's not enough for my bride we have yet to even scratch the surf the surface of the depth and breadth of the beauty of this earth and God still says not enough when it says a new heaven and a new earth, the Greek there for new does, is not referring to time, as in he pushed one away and then there's a new one that came into existence and the newness is that it's there now. The new there refers to a qualitative new, where the newness is referring to its new quality that God created. Imagine how long you will be able to study physics with this new world. You'll be comparing it to the old world, saying, boy, back, back when we were on the old earth, physics worked this way, now physics works another way. And photons and, 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 the, and atoms or whatever, just trying to think of scientific words at this point, um, are just you know these amazing new things to look at and they're responding and acting in different ways and the beauty of, of what we would see the new Alps would be even more incredible and you can explore them with better intelligence. This new earth, this new heaven has that kind of quality behind it. It's what uh, one commentator says, the fundamental physical structure of the universe has changed. Of the universe. And all of this is even spoken of back in Isaiah 65. If you want to look back there with me for just a second, 
Isaiah 65 and 66 both speak of this, but I want to look at Isaiah 65. There's a prophecy there. If you look at Isaiah 65, starting at verse 16, we see this prophecy being laid out. Because he who is blessed in the earth will be blessed by the God of truth. This is the prophecy. And he who swears in the earth will swear by the name or by the God of truth. Because the former troubles are forgotten, and because they are hidden from my sight. For behold, I create new heavens and new earth. And the former things will, be remember, will, will not be remembered or come to mind. But be glad and rejoice forever in what I create. For behold, I create Jerusalem for rejoicing and her people for gladness. I will also rejoice in Jerusalem and be glad in my people. And there will be no longer be heard in her the voice of weeping and the sound of crying. Now what's interesting is you see a very strong parallel, right? New heavens and new earth is introduced, but it also talks about God dwelling with his people and referring to him dwelling with his people in reference to this Jerusalem says, I will also rejoice in Jerusalem and be glad in my people. There is a kind of one-to-one -one correlation between the term Jerusalem and the term his people. It is not that Jerusalem is going to be this giant city that descends from the clouds, right? Because that's kind of what I always envisioned as I read Revelation, that there's this giant city called Jerusalem and this city of lots of buildings with some, you know, these buildings come down and they set down on the earth and then wait for people to get inside those buildings. But Jerusalem are the people. They are the people that will descend. They are the bride because Revelation even gives us that, right? It even says, if you look... Um, there at the, at the first verse, for the first heaven, the first earth passed away, and there is no, no longer any sea. And I saw, verse 2, the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of the heaven from God, made ready as a bride. Who is always referred to as the bride? This city is, being, is saying the equivalency is the bride. The city is the bride. And the bride is adorned for her husband. And we know the bride throughout the New Testament is always referred to as the church. And so who is the church that will be the Jerusalem? Is it the same thing that's mentioned over in Isaiah 65 that is equating the, this Jerusalem with the people of God and God will be among his people? Who are these people? We look back in Ephesians. For those of you that have been coming to Friday Night Bible Study, probably already know what I'm going to say here. We've been going through the book of Ephesians in Friday Night Bible Study. And if you look at Ephesians chapter 2, 
we want to think about in Ephesians chapter 2 what is being referred to as the bride or the church. Look at verse 15 of Ephesians chapter 2. Verse 15. Let me start a little earlier so it makes more sense. Verse 13. But now, in Christ Jesus, uh, you who formerly were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. And who is he talking about? Those who are far off. That's the Gentiles. They were afar off, they were not part of the Jews. They were Gentiles, they were not included in the promises. For he himself is our peace, who made both groups into one, speaking of the Jews and the Gentiles, into one, and broke down the barrier of the dividing wall by abolishing in his flesh the enemies, which is the law of commandments contained in ordinances, so that in himself he might make the two into one new man, thus establishing peace. So the church is not the Gentiles. The church is not the Jews. The church is the Jews and the Gentiles together, made into one new man. And they will descend from the heavens onto the new earth that God has created, the new earth. And he does this because his plan has always been for his people. And we know this through, through revelation that the, that the people are understood as the true Jews, the real Jews, as Paul puts it, are those who are circumcised in the heart. The same cry from Joel echoes into the New Testament that we are to be circumcised in the heart that has always been God's people. God's people have always been the ones circumcised in the heart, whether Jew or Gentile, whether Greek or Jew or bond or free. I say all that to make sure we understand what is being promised here isn't for one group who isn't us, or is for us but not another group. The New Jerusalem are those people that are the people of God, brought together into one man. And as we look through the next verse, we see this new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God, made ready as a bride adorned for her husband. This bride is prepared and adorned. The church and this is where, and I know I'm, I think my, until this point, I think my brothers in the Orthodox Presbyterian Church would be very happy with me. They're like, you're celebrating God, you're celebrating these great things, you're celebrating that, that um, you know, what to look forward to, and now you should pray and shut up real quick so that, you know, people will will, you know, 
be moved by the Holy Spirit if they are too. But I'm not going to stop there because that's not the whole point of what I want to talk about today. The whole point of what I want to talk about today is that this preparation of the bride, the church, is something we don't care about. This preparation, this adornment, where the bride has been, according to Ephesians chapter 5, where the the bride has been washed by the water of the word and presented to the Father without spot or wrinkle. This washing is a difficult work, especially when your bride is especially dirty and when the bride is ungrateful for the washing. The whole point of our existence, have you wondered about that? Um, Part of my background is in philosophy and, you know, wondering about that, you know, philosophers, I'm not one, but, you know, I've I've read about them. Uh, Philosophers have have the pleasure and the time to think about thoughts that we don't have time for because we have supper to make and we have children to spank and all those sort of things. Um... But why, are, why do you exist? Why are you here? And, and a good answer, right? What is the chief end of man? To glorify God and enjoy him forever. And that's a great answer. But did you know in order to be able to glorify God and enjoy him forever, as these verses say we will do, it takes some work for you to be, to be conformed to the image of the Son because that's why you were predestined. You were predestined not to, so that you can just go to heaven and enjoy the new heaven and the new earth. You were predestined to be conformed to the image of the Son. That's what you were predestined to do. So if that's what our predestined work is to be, to be conformed to the image of the Son, what parts of that work that it takes, that washing to be conformed to the image of the Son that we hate? Many of you have children, and you understand what I'm about to talk about. Children believe that life is about something that life is not about, and we keep trying to help them understand what life is really about. I think that's basically the, the sum total of parenting. And you're, you, you, you get some payoff maybe when they hit 30 or 40 years old and they realize death is coming and they realize all the stuff you've been trying to prepare them for is important. But until then, they don't think they're going to die. They really don't. This is my hardest, this is the hardest thing to deal with as a, as a, when I teach students, especially students who are young, that have a lot of life left in them. They're usually in their teens or 20s, and they are convinced that death is something that happens to other people. They know as a matter of fact that you know, according to logic, they're going to die someday, but they really don't really believe that. Because if they really believe that, they would live much differently. But we live as though this is our eternal home. 
We live as if this is the, etern- the eternal spot for us, and we've got to make something of ourselves here, and so we better have success here because this is it. And we make goals for ourselves that we think, this will make me happy. If I'm able to do this with my life, then I will be happy. If I'm able to marry this person, then I will be happy. If, and this person now must make me happy. If we just have a child, we'll be happy. If we just are able to get out of debt, we'll be happy. Whatever it is that you think you will make you happy, we set those goals because deep down inside, we believe this is our home. We long for a home that will pass away. We allow this home to eat up our week, and we go a full 24 hours without ever speaking to our God, or maybe two days without speaking to our God, or maybe the first time you spoke to your God in a week was when you were forced to because you were made to get on your knees today and pray. We are convinced that this is our home. We are convinced that this place will make us happy. We are convinced that the goals of this place will bring us satisfaction to the point where when we read these verses and we hear about a bride, us, being adorned for, their, for our husband who has made a new heaven and new earth for us, who has sacrificed himself for us, and that we will be placed here without any deserving of it and enjoy him forever, and it bores us. And that if, I, if we had a sermon about how you could have a better, more satisfying marriage, or a better, more satisfying week, or a better, more satisfying life, we would be much more interested And I hope it scares us to death if any of these verses make us bored or we look at it without any zeal, any excitement, any anticipation. Have we become the disinterested bride where we have the perfect husband who is preparing a place for us, who is going to say even the beauty of this world isn't enough for my bride, who says that even the very foundational physical structure of this place, as beautiful and as well-designed and as perfect as I said it was when I said it is good, is still not good enough. And we look at that and we're bored to death. In fact, what we find as a bride, we find ourselves ungrateful. If you have children, you, never, you don't understand this quite well enough until you have children and you realize the most ungrateful thing that your child can, can do is be lazy. 
It really is. As they can't seem to get to making the bed that you bought them. Or wash the clothes that you've bought them. Or that they might view uh, pornography or keep their face plastered to a phone you bought them and maintain monthly for them. As they drive their cars legally because of the money you're spending and they just don't care. They are too lazy to care, to be thankful. And this is where most parents find that thing inside them that makes them rear up in sometimes anger over their children because they see ungrateful children. And with all the anger and frustration that that brings up in us, I wonder if we understand what we look like to our Father. We are too lazy to get on our knees on our own. We are too lazy to open the Bible on our own. We have to go to church and have someone make us open our Bible and think about something. And it will be the last time we think about it until we have another church service. We are lazy, and that laziness is not the real issue. The real issue is that laziness is born in the heart of ingratitude. We are not grateful. We don't give God honor. And here is what should really frighten us. This is something that I've brought, I brought up in last Friday night Bible study. I've brought up in many Sunday schools, and I'll bring it up one last time. Uh, it won't be the last time. Uh, but in Romans chapter 1, what is total depravity? Is it the big list of fruits that are brought out at the end? We say no. That, those are the things that brings about, you know, what total depravity brings about. They bring about being unloving and murder and hate and all those things. And we think that if there's one of those we haven't done yet, we think, hey, I'm not completely depraved. After all, I haven't murdered anyone yet. But you are totally depraved. Because if you read back into those verses, what you find, total depravity begins in the heart of an ungrateful, unhonoring heart to the Lord. It is the worst thing you can do, is be ungrateful and dishonor your God. And we become a bride with more longing for, the old, for our old life of whoring ourselves out than we care about our husband. We are a bride with more longing for the gutter we used to live in than the new home of our God. Our unbelief is ungratefulness. If you are struggling with unbelief today, where it is difficult for you to believe that there really is a God as he is spoken of in Scripture, and there really is a structure to reality in which we have covenantal relations, whether it be Adam or Christ, 
and those covenant relations depend upon whether your future is lake of fire or new heaven and new earth. And that is the actual reality of, that we live in. If you struggle with that, that is not because there isn't enough information. It is not because God has not made himself plain enough. It is not because we lack uh, the, the, the intellect to be able to grasp these things in Scripture. It is because we are utterly ungrateful to our God. Unbelief is not a struggle. It is a sin. Our disinterest in the things to come. And this disinterest finds itself sometimes in our obsession over nuance. We're so bored that God is going to make for us a new heaven, a new earth, that we become obsessed with the nuance of how it will come about, and we're worried about whether we're going to disappear and our clothes are going to be left behind, or, we're gonna, or there's some kind of uh, way we're going to usher in the, the kingdom, or, if, or whatever it is that you, we've decided from our interpretation that's going to be to the point where we divide ourselves and argue amongst ourselves over the nuance because we're so bored over the new heaven and new earth that we can all agree on. Our lack of conformity to the sun is our ungratefulness. When we see our children not conforming to Christ. It should bother us not because they're embarrassing us, but because they're ungrateful to their God. We are a bride that is ungrateful, unbelieving, uninterested. We're nonconformists because we think we're so special. And the grace that we think we believe in is the grace that says, this is God's gift because you're not special. That's what makes it grace. It wouldn't be grace if God gave us all these wonderful gifts because we're special. I get so frustrated with young people that think I need to pepper in the world with my Christianity so I can be cool and special. And when Christianity is no longer cool, then I just am not interested in Christianity. And the stupidity of it all is that Jesus Christ is the only one that can make you special. He is the one that brings any kind of relevance to your life. The only one that allows you to be anything other than someone that deserves to bake in a lake of fire for eternity. The thing that would please our God is to become a bride who is filled with belief, who is filled with anticipation over what he will do for us, who is interested in his gifts, who longs to be conformed to the Son, 
so that we might be adorned and prepared for our husband. That we would take the time and the work it takes to study God's word, that we might be able to be excited over the reality of what this means instead of disinterested because we have bought into the lies that this world has brought to us. Let, us, let this week be a week where we are really putting effort forward for that conformity and really putting effort forward into God's word. I fear that our disinterest comes from the lack of being in his word and the lack of speaking to our God. Let us be a bride prepared and adorned.